Hello, everyone. This is Marcus Moore, and we are once again back at it. Welcome to the Prophetic Times and Seasons podcast. I am so grateful to be on once again with my viewing audience. It is a pleasure to uh, to be able to share with you in a way that is very unique even to myself. It's been a journey, and I am so grateful to have this opportunity. Today is a special day. I have a wonderful guest with me that I'm excited to introduce to you. And uh, I am very looking forward to this interview today. So if you will help me welcome Pastor Matt Teb, I am so happy to have him on with us. Thank you, Matt Teb. Uh, welcome to the Prophetic Times and Seasons podcast. How are you doing? Good, Marcus. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. What, a, what an honor. It is an honor indeed, sir. So, Matt, if you can uh, just share with the audience a little bit about who you are, I would love for you just to kind of give us a little bit of background into uh, just, um, you know, who you are to, to the viewing audience. Yeah, yeah, I guess maybe working from present back or from most immediate to the uh, periphery. So, I'm married, have two kids, 13 and a nine-year-old, 13-year-old boy, nine-year-old daughter. I've been married over 20 years. I live in the Midwest, uh, Indianapolis, although I, I've, uh, since I've uh, grew up, I was born and raised in Indiana, born and raised in Indianapolis. I uh, spent about 10 years away from here, but uh, I've learned since moving away and coming back that there's, there's some people like basically from like Nebraska, Iowa area who uh, take umbrage at Indiana calling themselves Midwest. So I just want to say if there's any listeners, uh, they're the real Midwest. They don't even know what we're doing. We're the East Coast or something, you know, or we're messing around with that phrase. But grew up, grew up in Indianapolis. And like I said, spent 10 years away from here and came back in 20, end of 2015, rather abruptly. And I uh, pastor a church with uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ben Sternke, who I also co-founded uh, an organization called Gravity Leadership with. Um, both of those, uh, both our church, uh, the table, and gravity leadership um, arose out of our own stories, our own journeys as Christians, trying to make sense of being a Christian, trying to make sense of being a white Christian in a very uh, white country, uh, and realizing uh, all the complications and implications that go along with that, and trying to make sense of that, right? So part of our conversation today, Marcus, about... Uh, faith and faith formation and, and how deconstruction is a part of that uh, is very present to me even now as we try to live faithfully uh, in, you know, 2022. You are already getting us started into our discussion. So yeah, <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Yes, we are talking about deconstruction today is our topic. And so, you know, Matt, it's, it's, so, um, it's so interesting to hear how comfortable you are in, in kind of sharing that, right? Like it mm. just seems like you embody what it means to be transparent as a white Christian, as a white pastor. Um, I just think that's so interesting that you're so courageous. Like there's, there's, there's such courage in being able to do that kind of work. What, um, mm. what has gotten you to the place of that level of deep self-reflection? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll try to talk that out a bit. I think, um, Marcus, I've had the, the privilege of having some really close uh, non-white friends 
some black and brown friends uh, and some women as well, uh, men and women who have loved me enough to tell me the truth. Um, and by God's grace, uh, I was able to hear it. And so, I don't know, it's about, <clears throat> I mean, maybe I'll back up here. There, there is this uh, African um, proverb about the Sankofa. And it's a, it's a bird that, uh, f- that looks backward to fly forward. So if, if you look, if you look, if you Google Sankofa, S-A-N-K-O-F-A, you'll see like a etched drawing of um, what looks like maybe a goose or a duck that is flying, that is moving in one direction, his body's pointing one direction, but its head is turned around backwards. And um, the Evangelical Covenant Church does this pilgrimage called the Sankofa Journey. And, and what and what happens on a Sankofa journey is it's a mixed uh, mixed race sort of group of people. So typically it's a, a group of white people and a group of black people that are paired up together. And you travel throughout uh, some sort of some civil rights landmarks and um, places. So for instance, uh, the motel where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed, the Selma Bridge. Um, you go to different places and you just inhabit that space and share your perceptions and reflections, walk through museum, and then you debrief together as a group. And I did that in 2008. And I think, I think for the first time on that journey, I was able to name the anxiety I felt of being white and the anxiety I felt in naming whiteness as something that made me anxious. There's, and since then I've been, I've just been playing around with how to name this. I've since then I've been talking about like, there's this white code. You're not supposed to, you're not, white people have all agreed not to make each other uncomfortable about being white. And it's not a, it's not like a, you know, we don't sit down before we go out, you know, for, for drinks in a movie. Okay. Now remember the white code. It's just like this arrangement. It's this social arrangement that's sub that's agreed upon. Like deep, 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 uh, deeply embedded in our social arrangements and our, and our imaginary that we, we are not going, like, we are going to, we are going to rescue each other from feeling guilty or anxious or uneasy about our racialization as white people. And when I realized that, when I realized, oh gosh, I don't, I don't want to be, I, I didn't, it wasn't an every head bowed and every eye closed moment where I agreed to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I started intentionally transgressing it. Like to break free from it. And I just noticed, man, this makes me so anxious to name how whiteness works. I know, I know I'm pissing off a lot of white people, but I just started to experiment with like, you know, <clears throat> I know this podcast is, you know, it's got the word prophecy in the title, prophetically trying to name what's real, even when it makes me feel uncomfortable and just, uh, you know, I'll say this and then I'll, I'll pause for a second, but 
I think I also realized that the anxiety or uncomfortability I feel in exposing whiteness as a principality in power is a fraction of the uncomfortability and suffering and distress that whiteness causes others as a principality in power. And so a part of uh, reparation, a part of, uh, a part of repairing the lie that whiteness is, is telling the truth about the lie that whiteness is, which creates anxiety for me um, and other white people and other people who benefit, I think, from white supremacy or whiteness. Uh, but it's, that's a fraction of hopefully, uh, that's a fra- like the suffering that it causes you to like name something that makes you anxious is a fraction of the suffering that it causes for people who are racialized as non-white. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's been a part of this experiment of, Marcus, I've never dismantled whiteness before in my life. <laughs> I've never done that. You know what I mean? I don't know what I'm doing, uh, but I'm, I'm committed to making mistakes of commission rather than mistakes of omission as it comes to confronting evil and dismantling injustice. Good. So, you know, I have grown up in on the evangelical side of, of uh, the church, um, have been heavily involved in prophetic ministry. Um, much of what is usually taught as it relates to the prophetic is tied to prognostication, prediction. Um, we tend to get very fascinated with the ability to foresee the future. Um, I think it's less often connected to, in particular, prophecy. It's less often connected to truth telling. Mm-hmm. Um, although there are circles um, within the Black church that are very much driven by what it means to tell the truth, uh, to provoke. Um, you know, Al Sharpton is coming out with the book called Righteous Troublemakers Mm. and what that really does look like in the communities at large in terms of how we show up um, for those who have been disenfranchised and marginalized. Um, I found it very interesting um, because uh, sometimes we do, uh, you know, fall into certain roles that allow for us to tell the truth. Um, but we sometimes shy away from telling that we, we are, we're, it's easier for us to tell the truth to others, but it's sometimes more difficult to tell the truth to ourselves. Yes. And yes. so we sometimes uh, live as imposters to our, in our own bodies because we're not comfortable with telling the truth to mm. ourselves. Mm. And so we're living a lie because it's uncomfortable to show up in our own skin and mm. to truly reflect on who we are as, you know, as me being a black man. What does that look like? What does that feel like in, in a world um, that sometimes is antagonistic to uh, what it means to be black? And how does that show up in in society at large? But I found that what you just said to be very interesting because what you're saying is, you know, I need to, I'm having to confront my own um, 
whether it's, you know, you want to call it sin, I'm having to challenge my own thinking, you've named whiteness as a principality. I would love for you to uh, elaborate on what you mean by whiteness mm. and what that means in terms of it being a principality. Yeah. Expound on that. Sure. And I, I want to acknowledge here, um, my head is still spinning with uh, the phrase you just said, imposter in my own body. So uh, hopefully I'll be coherent, but there's so we could do a whole podcast on that, Marcus. It's such a pregnant phrase to name an existential reality that seldom gets named. Um, I also want to acknowledge I'm standing on the shoulders of Dr. Willie James Jennings and J. Cameron Carter, Jamar Tisby, and a number of other scholars and uh, mostly black scholars and Christians that I've learned about whiteness from. Um, when I say principality and power, I'm, I'm intentionally trading off of language that's used in the New Testament to describe the way that the um, the way that the, the power oriented against God operates. Right? We could get into we could get into a long conversation about the ancient cosmology, how the, the Hebrews saw uh, God. They were monotheists, but they saw that God had these these under under regents who operated with his authority but they had rebelled. Uh, and so um, I don't want to like get lost in that cosmology, I'm, but I'm borrowing these phrases that we see like the Apostle Paul used to describe how something like whiteness works. Um, when I say it's principality, I mean that it was, it was intention, whiteness as a racialized construct was intentionally created to do work. <laughs> and that work is set up against the kingdom of God. So whiteness wasn't created to help me see the image of God in others or to love others better or to be more generous. Whiteness was created to justify the accumulation of power and wealth and land at the expense of those deemed not white. And so I, you know, it doesn't hurt to be a Christian to call that awful, but I would just, I would, <laughs> I would suggest you don't even have to be a Christian to think that's awful. <laughs> right. I mean, it helps, but, uh, I mean, you know, a B minus human being would say there's something wrong with that. You know, there's something not quite right. So when I call it a principality in power, uh, here's some of the here's some of the artifacts of that, Marcus. I don't have to consciously hate or have animus or bias, conscious bias against someone who's non-white to be compromised by white supremacy. Another artifact of that, I perpetuate the systemic and structural hegemony, evil, of white supremacy simply by being alive as a white person <laughs> and in going with the flow, going with the flow. So uh, intent doesn't matter. Like, I don't. I don't, uh, even as a young, I was raised Roman Catholic. 
Um, and I was raised in kind of a post-Vatican II Roman Catholicism. Um, and I was in a, um, I raised in a family that prided itself on being better than other white people because we didn't do things like tell racist jokes or use the N-word. Um, but, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure black and brown listeners, you all know white people in your life who pride themselves on not being racist. And sometimes they're the most insufferable people to be around. <laughs> like, and I, you know, I spent a lot of my life, I think insufferable is the right word. Um, because I didn't realize that um, all the ways that I was culpable for and compromised in a culture ordered, normed, and centered on whiteness. It was common, whiteness is common sense. Whiteness norms and orders things, shapes things. You mentioned being an imposter in your own body. How many, how many standards of beauty and success and goodness are ordered and normed and shaped on the white body? Whether it's hair or lips, or nose, or whatever it is, eyes, whatever it is. And so um, when I call it a principality, I mean that it is it, it has been set up to function out of sight, out of mind. The 10,000 ways it operates, they're just assumptions. We don't even ask questions about them. They never get brought to the table. They never get brought to light because it's just common sense right? Common sense. So for instance, uh, one of the ways that whiteness inhabits our culture is through our economy, right? So it's, it's hard to talk about the construction of whiteness apart from the emergence of what became like a global capitalistic economy. Um, and there's, there's many people who've written on that it's hard, to, it's hard to see how America exists or how capitalism flourishes without the enslavement of black and brown bodies. Like there's just, historians have a hard time accounting for this would have worked, <laughs> right? And so it's hard to tease out like the emergence of our economy from the need to racialize people, white and black, in order to exploit and um, extract value from their body for financial gain. Uh, but one of the ways this common sense works is, you know, I think under our prevailing uh, economy, the common sense in our economy is if you work hard and play by the rules, you'll succeed. Work hard, right? Protestant work ethic. Uh, play by the rules, law and order, Marcus, right? And you'll, and you'll succeed. And that is just simply not true. It's not true. It's true for wealthy white people sometimes. And there's just enough non-white, non-wealthy people, you know, like I'm thinking of Will Smith's story, Happiness, you know, that he, the movie he made. There's just enough of those stories to mask over the fact that that sort of common sense that I think is ordered and shaped by whiteness isn't true for the vast majority of non-white, non-wealthy people. And so that's just like one way I think that whiteness orders and shapes structures, assumptions, common sense, what we value, how we value it, 
in myriad ways, right? That um, we're all caught up in it. And unless we name it, unless we say something like um, playing by the rules is impossible for some people, doesn't work for other people. And it's the wealthiest of the wealthy, most of them white people, who break the most rules with no consequences. Like, unless we can say that without having to apologize or without having to say, uh, you know, well, I'm I'm not a communist or like whatever. Like, you know, we have to like show our America card that we don't hate America. Like, unless we can just say these things baldly, plainly, and be like, yeah, well, of course. Then, then we are under the under the dominion of something that's set up against how I see the kingdom of God operating in Jesus. Yeah, I I grew up in the church, and um, again, I grew up in a. Uh, prophetic evangelical church, we would very often pray against principalities and powers. And much of our language that um, were connected to that was, you know, we would pray against uh, witchcraft. You would hear that very often. We might pray against um, lust or pray against, um, you know, other sins that are typically, or abortion, right, like that are typically common to uh, the culture. Um, I have um, been in the church most of my life. I have not yet heard any pastor um, or prophet even lead us in engagement in prayer where we're addressing the principality of whiteness. Like that's never come up. Um, and I'm just curious as to why and, and how that shows up in your church. What does that look like in terms of how you address that, right? So I'm, I, I know that you have a body of work that is centered around this, but in terms of how you engage this on an everyday basis with your congregation, how do you guys actually tackle this principality? Is it theological? Is it spiritual? Um, how does it show up for you? Yeah. Um, a large part of this for our church. So we, we've been talking about this explicitly since the beginning and we've taken seasons to study it, to have classes and discuss it, to read things together, to, um, go to workshops together. And a a great, a big part of this Marcus is telling the truth about history there's a there's a there's a, a national myth or a corporate imagination that's been formed and shaped that doesn't that leaves a lot of things out. You, you know what I'm saying? Um, like here's an example. I was listening to a conservative evangelical person talk about um, the the two Americas, and he was talking about the America as typified by the 1619 project. And the America is typified by the 1776, like the constitution and like, which one of those things. And his, po- his point was there's truth in both of these. And, um, 
I think it was kind of, I, I grow weary of this, but there's the, the big point was we can't even talk to each other. We can't even listen to each other. And as I was listening to that, I was thinking, well, let's talk about the 1776 project. Let's talk about all men are created equal. What, what does men refer to there? You know, it's clear in the constitution that men refers to white men. And it's clear in the constitution that men refers to white landowning men because those are the only ones who could vote. So the constitution, now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just saying the constitution as written was, was talking to and about perhaps 10 to 15% of the population because black people, indigenous people, women, poor whites, and wealthy non-landowning whites were disenfranchised. So to even conceive of, there's two Americas. There's the 1619 Project America and the 1776, like who America really wants to be and its ideals, the ideal of all men created equal. I just wanna say, we first have to be honest we can retrieve that ideal today, right? I think you and I could agree, yeah, it'd be great if we lived as though all people were created equal. Um, but that's not what they meant. That's not what that document wanted to do. That's not what was going on there. So part of dismantling whiteness for my congregation, you have like 150 people, right? Small church, is to tell the truth. And tell the truth with each other. And notice, like I said before, there's an anxiety, a defensiveness, a reactivity. Uh, Resmo Minikim in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, calls it white body supremacy trauma. That book is uh, fascinating, by the way. It's, it helped me so much name the reactivity I see in myself and in other white people when we start talking about this kind of thing. Um, there's just so much reactivity, so much triggering. So part of it's telling the truth. The second part of it is, Marcus, to be like, you're going to be triggered when we talk about this. You're going to feel it in your body. Let's name it. Where is it? How do you see it? What happens? Does your, does your belly get sick? Does your neck get hot? Right? Does your heart start racing? Do you start sweating? You get angry? You get out your phone and you just check out. Notice what happens to you. Because the second thing that I think we need to build as a congregation is resiliency to our own reactivity. Part, part, of, part of, I mean, we see this right now. I mean, I'm always two seconds away from a rant, Marcus, so I apologize if I'm getting off topic here. But we see this in school boards right now and in state legislatures. They're passing these laws, these CR, known as CRT laws, but they're really, they're being used to ban books that tell the story of America's history. And part of the rationale is, well, my kids feel bad when, <laughs> when you tell them the truth. And, and this is part of the white code, Marcus, because whiteness, whiteness promises white people that you'll never have to feel bad for being white. But whiteness doesn't offer white people access to how 
other kids who are non-white feel about being non-white? Is it even possible for them to not feel bad for being non-white? <laughs> Do you even care? Is it possible for a not? Is it possible? And I think the answer is no here from the number of uh, black mothers and fathers I've talked to. But is it possible for to raise a black child in America today without that child knowing from a very early age that you're black and that this is what that means when you leave the house? Whiteness promises to white people that they don't have to care about that. And that non-white people bear the particular burden of having to navigate that, and white people are then shielded or quarantined from it. So part of the work, I think, for white people, including the white people that I'm in community with, is to let that triggering come. Let that trauma come online, expect it, and then create resiliency and tolerance for it so that we can persist in hard conversations, so that we can not just freak out, just freak out and, and become build the kind of character necessary to press into difficult things. So I know those sound like super preliminary, super rudimentary things. I can't, I, it's hard for me to exaggerate, even though that's my, that's my spiritual gift, man, exaggeration. It's hard for me to exaggerate how we can't do any work until we tell the truth and build resiliency to our own reactivity. Yes, some of what you're, you're sharing reminds me of the book by Walter Brueggemann, uh, The Prophetic Imagination. Um, I have, um, I was in a conversation with someone who was sharing with me just kind of in dialogue about like what the purpose is behind these conversations, black theology, black liberation, theology, whiteness, why is this so important? Now, this is a black person. I'm talking to one of my, my black friends and they could not fully understand why this topic is, is important. They were saying to me, I just don't understand, you know, when I come to church or when I come to hear someone speak, I'm not really that concerned about that, right? Like for me, I just want to hear what God has to say to me. I just want the word of the Lord for my own life. Like I, I'm just trying to, yeah. to live and, and, and to live faithful to God and live holy. Um, I need a prophetic word to kind of live out my life in a way that's pleasing to God. Um, and I would love for you to talk about um, individualism in particular in the church and how that has impacted um, how we interpret the scriptures, how we see the prophetic and how this plays into what you're, you're saying. Yeah, there's, there's such a long conversation here about what Dr. Uh, Willie James Jennings talks about how um, whiteness, um, whiteness, uh, destroys identity. It strips people of their land and their language. Right there, there was um, there's these stories of when people were um, brought over on the transatlantic Atlantic slave trade about how, there was a reprogramming, a deprocessing of of native language to, and because they realized that like 
we take these people from their land. We have to rid them of their language. We have to rid them of their customs. Same thing happened with the indigenous people, right? Taking them off their land, putting, giving them, dressing them in different clothes, putting them in, in schools that indoctrinate them with American values. So there's a way, I think there's a, there's a way that the Western world has conceived of what does it mean to be human? And it's very, uh, very truncated, very sort of um, uh, solitary sort of identity formation. Um, the other thing I was thinking about uh, as you were sharing that is I, I think there is this move and I think you can, we can name this. So all these words I think have like overlapping circles. So if we say colonialism or we say racialized capitalism or we say white supremacy, or even if we, we, we talked about like patriarchy or toxic sort of power and authoritarian masculinity, right? I think it's, we can't talk about these things as discrete phenomenon because they, they all are connected and hinged together. Um, and, in the way that they function, I think in, in in a lot of the West. But one of the things that um, I noticed as you were talking about, like I like don't don't talk to me about the Armed Arbery uh, sentencing that happened this week at church. I just I just want I just want to I just want to hear quote the gospel, right? Um, my mind immediately went to like Exodus three. And I'm just thinking of like, you know, Moses being called off off the shift with the sheep and Midian, and God saying, "Hey, I've heard uh, I've heard the cries of my people who are being oppressed, and I want to I want to you send you there to help them out." And Moses was like, "God, just can you just like give me the gospel? You know, just sing like Psalm one to me." Maybe, maybe a good sermon with some application points. So part of this issue, Marcus, is I think that we've spiritualized Christianity to the extent that it has no material tethering to our real life. We, this is, I think, a function of whiteness. We've abstracted the kingdom of God into a spiritualized thought. But when Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God, maybe as typified or uh, essentialized, like the Sermon on the Mount, it's a socio-political order. It changes the way we order our bodies, our, our possessions. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Magna Carta. And so I think part of the individualistic problem is connected to this abstraction of the Christian life is lived internally, solitarily, and, quote, spiritually, which, which what I think that's a synonym for dematerialized. So, for instance, it doesn't matter how much money I have. What matters is my heart. Right? Doesn't doesn't matter how much I pay my employees. What matters is my heart towards my employees. Now I, I don't want to say that, that the heart doesn't matter, but I'm saying that that's an artifact. But I think of of what whiteness did, which by the way is come is like slaveholder religion. 
So I can, ens- I can enslave this person and try to save their soul. Or I can save this person. I can enslave this person, but be- because what really matters is their eternal soul. Right. And so there's this, this, uh, uh, yeah, there's this disconnection between real world and spiritual life that I actually think is not at all how Jesus conceived of his kingdom. And I think that contributes this internalizing, this abstracting, this dematerializing uh, contributes to us thinking in solely individualistic ways. Matt, how would you define deconstruction? What is what does that look like? Oh man. Uh, well, I mean, deconstruction is is so a construct is like the container in which you make sense of things, right? So a construct is how you access the world. And I mentioned whiteness. So whiteness is a construct. I think I don't even think this is actually debatable anymore or even um, controversial. Like whiteness is a social construct. Now, some people want to say, okay, so the, the solution is pretend like it doesn't exist. Pretend like race doesn't exist. And I don't think that's true because once you've built something and it has 300 years of money behind it, it's not going to go away if you ignore it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but, but something is socially constructed, which means it has, it has a... It has a shape to it. It's got an architecture. It's got, like I mentioned, common sense earlier. Work hard, play by the rules, and you'll succeed. That's that's maybe the American dream, right? Or the promise of America. And it's a construct. And and it, they work great if you just don't ask questions about them, right? So deconstruction then is looking at the constructs you use and asking questions about it. Is this true? Where'd I get this idea? What does Jesus have to say about this? <laughs> you know? Um, so, so then I know that deconstruction is used in so many ways, and we're not talking about uh, maybe how it was used technically back in the 70s, Derrida and all that with language and texts and all that. We're talking about, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm having this conversation with you about how people colloquially use it, you know, in the nomenclature of the day, and I think it's, I think what I hear most people say when they talk about deconstruction is in the Christian church, I, faith has stopped working for me the way it used to. I, I can't make sense of this anymore. Right. So a real quick one that for instance, right. Um, when I first became a Christian, um, it was God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. Like that was the mantra that I kind of was in, and I, but I ran into lots of, lots of evil and suffering in the world that my conscience. And I would say the spirit of God couldn't let me attribute to God. Right. God didn't control this little girl being sexually violated. Like that's, I, I can't, I can't look at that mom or that girl or even myself in the mirror and say, God is in control of that. And so what happens is that what do you do there? You, you either like leave the faith 
or you look at that construct, that assumption and say, is it true? Where did I get this idea? What is, so that's the process of deconstruction. You run into the limit of what a, a paradigm or a common notion can do for you. And then you have to interrogate it. So it's not losing my faith. It is questioning what I've been taught to the degree that I am coming to a deeper understanding about what I truly believe. Yes, Marcus. Like, and I just want to say, try reading, try reading any book in the scriptures and not see that process happening. I mean, the book of Job is one big deconstruction project, right? You got these Deuteronomic promises. If you, if, good, if you do good, good things will happen to you. If you do bad, you'll be cursed. Here's a man that does good, Job. All these bad things happen to him. All his best buddies, thanks a lot, buddies, are like, well, you must, be, you must have done bad. That's why you're being cursed. And God comes and scrambles the whole thing at the end, right? So it's not, and that's not to lose. God's not after like Job walking away and losing his faith. God is saying this frame, frame is a construct that you have, is insufficient to contain reality. Same thing, like same thing with the Gentiles in Acts, right? Peter does not have a category for eating that food on that blanket. There's absolutely no way. God, why are you telling me to sin? I've never, I've never put an unclean thing in my mouth. And then I go into Cornelius's house. I see baptisms, and WTH? What is happening? Right? So either you have to say, I'm walking away from this whole thing, or I didn't have sufficient categories, frames, architecture in noetically to understand what's happening. This is what drives the drama in John's gospel. You know, there's people are just misunderstanding Jesus right and left. What do you mean? I got to be born again. I'm a grown man, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like these kinds of conversations. And it's not that these people are stupid, Marcus. They're not stupid people. But Jesus is talking on a different level, a different, I don't know, this is kind of a new agey word, but I don't know a better way to describe it. Like Jesus has a different consciousness that other people don't have. And Jesus seems to treat people, not only in John's gospel, but in all the synoptic gospels, as the best thing that Jesus can do for people is leave them frustrated, confused, angry. Why? Because we don't act actually change our consciousness. We don't actually deconstruct and break into like a new way of understanding and conceptualizing and, and, unless we come to the end of ourselves. This is part of the, I lose my mind when people are talking about like deconstructions being trendy or fancy, like as, or as though people are choosing it willingly and it's not the cool thing to do. Um, and I, I'm just doing it to be on the in crowd or get street cred. Nobody I know is losing church and friends and going through a faith crisis because they want to be cool. Nobody. It's because they're, they're trying to have integrity. They're trying to tell the truth about reality in their life and outside their life and how things aren't fitting and working anymore and trying to make sense of it. They're trying to make sense of their life. And we see this in the Gospels, in the New Testament. So yes, deconstruction, I would say, not only isn't losing faith, Deconstruction is a necessary biblical part of maturing in faith. 
And so if I don't go through the process of deconstruction, then I am ignoring or even um, keeping myself from the opportunity from of, of literally maturing in, in who I am as a believer, as a Christian. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like I need to make a caveat here though, Marcus, too, because a lot of people use the phrase de- or the word deconstruction as a synonym for deconversion, right? And I just want to be clear, like there are people that... Um, most of the people I know who've walked away from who, who were a Christian and now don't identify Christian anymore did so because of some kind of hurt or pain or disappointment. Right. I'm not saying that's the only part of the story, but I'm saying that's, that is a common theme I hear. And I, I don't, I don't want to say that uh, deconstruction necessarily leads to maturing of faith. What I'm saying is, what we see in scripture and what we see throughout history is that deconstruction seems to be crucial for those who mature in their faith. That's different than saying all deconstruction is great or saying it always leads to maturity. Um, that. So, there, so then there's an implication that there's unhealthy ways to deconstruct. Yeah. How do we want to talk about this? A lot of prof- a lot of the prophetic, Marcus, is learning to put language to things that haven't been languaged before, right? And so you sometimes have to talk it out a bit. I think part of so I mentioned God is in control, and then realizing I need a better, I need a more robust frame to describe the evil and suffering I see here. Um, one of the one of the things that is hardest for me as I walk through various levels of deconstruction and reconstruction is that I'm not in charge of it. Most of my deconstruction has been taking my hands off of things, having less sort of uh, white knuckled control and everything and learning how to live in a more surrendered consenting way with people, but also with the Lord. And so one of the, I don't know, paradoxes or just complexities of the construction is I, I don't, I don't think we get to secure outcomes in it. You know what I mean? Like, so for instance, I, you know, I'm talking about whiteness a lot and I'm in a very white denomination and people who have power in my denomination hate it. Right now, I'm trying to be faithful in deconstructing this what I call a principality and power systemic, maybe injustice. I, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you know what I mean? I, I, you know, I might, I might get kicked out of my denomination. Now, I'm not doing it to do that. And if I want to secure the outcome of not getting kicked out of my denomination, it's going to change the way that I faithfully walk through what I'm doing. But if I faithfully walk through what I'm doing, I, I can't secure. I can't secure outcomes the way I could if I didn't faithfully walk through it. Does that make sense? Sure. A couple more questions. I, um, how I view the prophetic, um, one of the beliefs that I hold is that it is very much connected to the past. Um, that 
you know, as we communicate the word of the Lord, as we communicate prophetically today, that it should be in some way connected to what God has already done to history. Um, and so, you know, as I reflect on where the church has been and where we are currently, um, my brain goes back to the Reformation, in particular, as we're talking about deconstruction. I'm curious to hear from you how you might see where we are, particularly as a church community at large, um, as it relates to this topic. How does the um, how does the event or the events that are tied to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and/or even other uh, large um, movements that have happened in church history? How does how do those events inform? how you view the church today and where we're headed. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I went to scriptures, but you know, you're, I mean, the Ref Protestant reformation was a giant deconstruction project, you know, and we could go, I mean, I, we can even say the existence of the black church is due to deconstruction. I mean, just think about this for a second. Enslaved people were either kept from the Bible because white people knew that there was a whole lot of liberation in there. Or they were given what was known as the slave Bible, which cut out all kinds of, in any kind of like setting the captive free, the whole Exodus event, like all kinds of things were carved out of there. How, how, how does the black church survive that? How, do, how does a group of people who experience this white person religion. It's not really that because uh, Christianity has existed in Africa for much longer than Europe. We don't have to go there. But I'm just saying, you know, for people living through that, this is, the, this is, for majority of them, this is a white person's religion that is being used to justify and legitimate our demonization and degradation. How do they, how do they retrieve and reclaim the goodness of God even in the midst of that, well, you got to deconstruct a whole hell of a lot. And I mean that literally. You've got to kick the hell out of this faith that you're trying to inhabit. Because if you don't, it, uh, it's, it's masochistic for you to believe it. So like even, even the existence of a vibrant, uh, healthy, faithful, flourishing black church is evidence that deconstruction is a holy prophetic necessary project um yeah so i i think what you're naming then here marcus points us to i mean we can go to azusa, azusa street revival we can do a lot of these different points in history where i think deconstruction has moved the church in a faithful direction but what you're pointing out is i think the the main the main anxiety and pushback against deconstruction has less to do with faithfulness and more to do with power You know, in the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church was in the in the midst of losing religious and political power. Right. So no longer no longer was the the Pope kind of the de facto head of every country. No longer was there a holy Roman emperor. You know, now now there was, you know, Henry VIII was the head of the church and the head of the state. It's part of the Reformation. And I think similarly today, we're seeing the powers that be, the gatekeepers, the people who get to call the shots, they are threatened by 
deconstruction because it questions the legitimacy of their power. You know, so I, I do think to be protest, protest ant <laughs> is to have as a part of your heritage this prophetic calling back or forward to faithfulness. And I think just to just to uh, then maybe tie up something else you said, um, we are tethered to this great history, this great cloud of witnesses of this reclamation, retrieval, and reconstructing project that we are always reaching into the past to reconfigure the present, to reconstruct the future. And, and this is an ongoing faithful process, right? And if we don't do this, we become historically, uh, have historical amnesia or get untethered from uh, the tradition and the witness and the faithfulness of the church. We are completely, I think, syncretistic or just um, capitulate to the current, present cultural blind spots. And, and we run the risk of just perpetuating injustice in the future. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so, so I think it's what you're saying is really important because this isn't about updating things, becoming novel, becoming uh, attractive or trendy. This is about like robustly fighting, contending for faithfulness. Do we think repentance is good news or not? Is it just, is it just good news for other people? No, repentance is the best thing that could happen to us today. And as Christians, we should believe that a hundred times more, not a hundred times less. And so like, if that's the case, let's, let's put our you know, lives where our beliefs are and let's actually live as though repentance is the best thing that could happen to me. The best thing. Are you kidding me? And we don't, we don't live like that. And and that's think I think that's to our own chagrin, and that's I think there is judgment in that, right? The people who are stiff-necked, who won't relent, who won't turn back, who won't turn around to fly forward, like you're stuck, you're paralyzed. You actually went right into one of my last questions. Um, I know at the beginning of, I want to say 2021, um, one of the messages I had ministered at a church was around um, reconstruction. I talked about, in, in particular, the word that I've heard you say, I, I recall using the word architecture, this idea behind um, God using his people to rebuild, right? And so I would reference, I referenced Noah and the ark and did a whole teaching around that and what that looked like in terms of how long it took Noah to build the ark and, and the details that went behind the work um, and the implications of that on the body of Christ. Um, and in, in some cases, I think I've heard other people kind of use that term, architect, build. I don't always know, I don't think we always know what we're talking about, um, even though there's something in the air, there's something prophetic about the language that might be commonly understood and communicated across the, across the board. I, I, um, 
I, I go to Walter Brueggemann's book, The Prophetic Imagination, right? Um, when, as we're using this language and thinking about what it looks like to rebuild, to, uh, to reconstruct, even after deconstruction, um, which is why I wanted to point backwards, because I think it's so important for us to do that kind of work and to truly understand the implications of uh, what happened and why the Reformation and how we got to where we are so that we might be more informed about the times and seasons that we're living in uh, and moving into. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm so, I guess my, my last question regarding that really is, what is at the end of deconstruction, which, which is of course reconstruction, but is there anything in particular you might be able to speak more materially uh, uh, towards that, that question? Yeah. One of the gifts that God's given me, is giving me over the last decade or so, is the ability to see power and how it works. I don't think I don't think I'm able to love people the way Jesus did unless I can see power. Um, I think Jesus in every situation is reckoning with power. Who has it? What are they doing with it? And then how does love redistribute and redefine power in justice? I say that to say, I think depending upon where you are, um, what, how you intersect with power, deconstruction looks different. You know? And, the, and what's on the other side of that? So for some people, it's liberation. For some people, it's exodus. One of the, one of the things that bothers me right now is that there are people who experience an Egypt in their life. There's a system or an institution or a logic that is set up not for their flourishing, but for their exploitation or oppression. And these are, these are maybe sometimes discrete arenas, maybe like a, a domestic violence, abuse situation in a marriage, right? And sometimes the people with power, I'm, I'm a white pastor, man, right? Sometimes, I'm going to use this as an example. Sometimes, sometimes people like me have more energy trying to police how a wife of a violent, with a violent husband, how she gets out of that situation, policing how she gets out or if she gets out rather than just celebrating, I'm glad you're no longer suffering physical abuse anymore. Right. So I get the picture of like, you know, as, as the Israelites pass through the Red Sea, the Egyptians are drowned. Like there's some people there who have like a list of things like, let's talk about those 12 plagues. Did the frogs really have to suffer? Did they have to, are you sure that was fair to the frogs? Right. Like there's like this policing or critiquing of how you got out of hell. And I think part of my job as a white pastor in a Christian denomination is not to police how people get out from underneath 
abuse, exploitation, suffering. But to try to understand, like, why are you running that way? I, I want you to get as far away from this situation as possible. Rather than, how long has it been since you prayed? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a, converse, there's a time and a conversation for that, if you want that from me. But my, so because of the power differential, I think, I think um, one of the things I'm learning is there's enough, like, there's enough people policing those getting out of Egypt, and we don't need one more. We don't need one more. N not from me, right? So, like, if people leaving Egypt want to talk to each other about how do we get out, I think that's great. Go for it. But not from me. Not from me. Um, but I think, I, think, I think liberation, freedom. Like, if, if we are practicing a Christianity that doesn't liberate us, and I don't just mean like an interiority, but I mean like a social, political reality. If it's not increasingly liberating and freeing, with all that entails, right? Forgiveness of debts and the empowering of marginalized or um, uh, oppressed peoples, a, a, uh, a washing the feet of those who have less honor status so that they are lifted up. Like if there isn't this general jubilee, if we don't experience freedom in tangible concrete ways, rather than just in like memory verse ways. Uh, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're like enjoying the fruit of the promised land that deconstruction can bring us to. Right. And then, you know, along with that, I'd just say the third thing is I, my test for this stuff, you know, Jesus talks about fruit, know a tree by their fruit. I think it's telling that, that Paul, the fruit he talks about are like the fruit of the spirit, right? And so getting clear about what love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, generosity, self-control, like, what does that look like? How, what does that live like? How do I, what are the artifacts of that? Uh, not just an intention but in actualization, do we know how to make peace? Are we building habits of patience? Is kindness a children's sermon? Or, or is kindness a stake in the ground? Right? So like, and, and are, there, are there ordering habits of relationality that we practice in order to honor and add to our kindness. Make every effort to add these things. So for me, that's the other side. We get freed up from uh, blindness, from complicity, and we're freed for the actualization of the kingdom of God under the Lordship of Christ, where we are reconstructing and building a community of people that, that thinks that has different answers to the questions of what are people for? What are possessions for? What are our bodies for? What is the land for? What is my house for? Right? What is my marriage for? What is my singleness for?
What are my children for? Like we, there's different answers to those questions, unordered under a different logic that we can now begin to reappropriate if we walk, I think, if we walk with integrity into the questions that need to be asked about all those things. So power matters. Got to see power. I think for me, it's liberation, freedom, jubilee. And then unto, like constructing a new logic. A new logic. I mean, how do we, what is a post-white supremacy reckoning of beauty? How do we learn to see beauty outside? Uh, that transcends whiteness. And I'm not just saying like people, like, you know, is, you know, I'm not just saying like, you know, is so-and-so attractive, is so-and-so attractive. I'm saying what norms and orders and shapes what we think is delightful, what we behold with joy, what we allow to what we, we allow into our consciousness, into our imagination, into our bodies that we connect with and attune to, what kind of beauty do, are we able to recover when we lose, I think, uh, the way that whiteness norms and shapes our perceptions of what is good and what is worthy and what is valuable? I don't know. <laughs> you know, like I, I want to find that out and I want to find out like there's, you know, a, a 300 other things like that. I want to, I want to discover that. And so, yeah, those are a smattering of, of thoughts. Spoken like a deeply introspective pastor. Um, Matt, how can people get to know you, reach out to you? Yeah, um, I'm I'm at pretty active on Facebook and Twitter. You can find me uh, with just my name, Matt Tebby, uh, M A T T T E B B E. There's three T's there in a row, and that's uh, both on Facebook and Twitter. Also, um, you can go to my church website if you want to just check us out there, the Table Indy I N D Y dot org, and then Gravity Leadership, which is just gravityleadership.com. That's the um, that's the sort of a coaching and training organization that um, we started to reconstruct a agile, faithful Christian spirituality centered on the love of God revealed in Jesus. That's sort of our, that's sort of our reconstruction, like field notes. And so if you want to check out that work, you can go there too. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining me on our podcast today. I just so much appreciate it. It was very informative and so engaging. I learned a lot. Um, I truly enjoy listening to you and uh, thank you so much just for, for being here. I really appreciate it. Marcus, it was an honor. Thank you so much. All right. And thank you to my viewing audience again. Uh, this is the Prophetic Times and Seasons podcast with Marcus Moore. And uh, I look forward to uh, joining you in the near future. Have a great, great time and day. Thank you. Bless you.